This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi there, Cheryl Arkell here. I can't even begin to tell you the solace and inspiration I've found speaking to the wonderful stories behind the story guests this year. As we farewell 2021, we've put together some of the highlights of the year for you. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. Thanks for all your support, your downloads, your reviews, and your wonderful feedback. From myself and the team at Better Eating, see you in 2022 with another year of amazing guests and books. Rick Morton, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Rick, I am going to introduce you firstly, and I am seriously looking forward to this chat because I know that it's going to be something that is going to be fun for me and the listeners, of course. Rick is an award-winning journalist and the author of three nonfiction books. He is the winner of the 2013 Kennedy Award for Young Journalist of the Year and the 2017 Kennedy Award for Outstanding Columnist, show off. He is a senior <laughs> reporter for the Saturday paper and regularly appears on television, radio and panels across both the ABC and commercial networks discussing politics, the media, writing and social policy. I just know that I'm just so looking forward to this conversation. It's right down my alley. His best-selling memoir, 100 Years of Dirt, is about growing up on the outside in Australia. It explores intergenerational trauma, poverty, addiction and mental health and was shortlisted for the 2019 Victoria Premier's Literary Award and the National Biography, among others. His latest book, My Year of Living Vulnerably, is about his journey to rediscover love, to get better, not cured, not fixed, just better. Wow. Okay. I really need to cut down that CV, I think. <laughs> I what's, the, like what's the statute of limitations on awards, I reckon? <laughs> I think it reads it really nicely. Oh, it's so um, long. I need to, that's wow. embarrassing. <laughs> wow. But that is a body of work and you're not that old. So anyway. I've, keep I've been busy. I've been busy. Someone said that to me recently. You're very prolific. I'm like, well, I don't know that I've got any other choice. <laughs> Tell me where the passion for writing came from. Do you know what? It, it came from my mum. Uh, so I was a bit of a weird kid. I don't know if that immediately comes across, but I'm sure it will by the end of this podcast. And her way of explaining me to herself really was to to tell me and herself that I was not her son and that I was dropped here by aliens from outer space. And it became this kind of motif throughout our, our lives where she always reminded me that I was her alien son and that I had been put here on Earth to write reports on humanity and to deliver them back to my alien overlords. And do you know what? It kind of just stuck. Mm. Uh, and I think that wormed its way into my brain somehow. And, you know, I was always okay at writing. Like it was the thing I enjoyed doing and I thought I was okay at it. And it just kind of worked out that I became a bit of a yarn spinner, I guess, as I grew up. Hey, you know, we have something in common. Oh, when God. I, yeah, when I was, <laughs> yeah. When I was little. <laughs> when I was little. And people often ask me how I felt about that, but I didn't. 
I like the point of difference. Anyway, I'm from a big family, Lebanese mm. Australians. Yep. We were brought up in Glebe uh, and then moved to Marrickville, like all good Lebanese Australians. <laughs> at time. Well, I'm in Arncliffe at the moment, so yeah. they've moved further out. You know, but I, um, out of all my brothers and sisters, I have freckles. And so mm. my father, from a very early age, used to tell me that I was adopted, that I was an Aussie <laughs> kid. And that stuck, you know, for a long time. My uncle would say to me, they'd call me Hey Aussie, you know. With kids like us, if we didn't have the right fortitude, it probably would have been quite damaging. But yeah. I loved it. I loved it. I loved being I like different. It. See, I like the point of difference too. I didn't want to yeah. be like my brothers and sisters. Like, yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I mean, look, I mean, I, I think I probably wanted to be like my brother, but I knew that I wasn't. And if I, you know, I wasn't good at mustering cattle and that was kind of the only thing that counted, even at the age of seven. Where Um, were you? Where did you We were 15 hours west of Brisbane, so like right in Queensland still, but just. So we're almost in South Australia on a cattle station that was 1,000 square kilometres. So, which was small in comparison to the ones my dad grew up on. So he was always a bit shirty about that. He's like, we're on a a hobby farm. (laughs) So a lot of authors that I've spoken to have talked about how they came to reading and writing, and a lot of mm. them came to reading first, as as you probably know. And many of them say that they, and it wasn't a sadness, it was like mm. that they lived in a remote community or they were isolated as a child or they were an only child or whatever. And there's a lot of stories like that that I think where the imagination is allowed to come free, run free, if you like, then we get people like you. Do you know what? That's a really good point because I was isolated and I grew up, uh, you know, so far away. We were an hour away from our nearest neighbour, uh, hour and a half from the nearest town, and it was just me and my brother for the first seven years of my life until my sister was born. So I was just at home with mum because I was close to her and, and she read a lot, but she just had, you know, the Danielle Steele books, the uh, Barbara Bradford-Taylor books. Um, she had Stephen King's It, which I made the mistake of reading when I was six, Whoa. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, huge That's mistake because yeah. uh, up until that point I had a fairly enduring respect for clowns and, you know, it wasn't by classical standards it wasn't the right literature but it was enough. I developed this sense of curiosity about the world through her, um, not just through the books but through the natural landscape that I was lucky enough and privileged enough to, to be on and to be so close to it. And that's it just kind of later, you know, sowed a seed in my mind about... Um, the fact that there is this kind of amazing world out there that you can engage with if you have the passion for it. And I, I can't explain any better than that where it came from. That's uh, as close yeah, as I've gotten. <laughs> it does make sense to me because the world that books give you is, it's such a lived experience, isn't it? That it's hard to describe to non-readers, I think. And there's no way other way of getting it if that's your world, right? No, and, you know, I didn't know what the world was like. I mean, I can't underscore enough how isolated and distant we were, not just um, geographically but culturally. You know, uh, my family is as white as the driven snow and, like, I had no idea about how anything worked. But I had books and and I had uh, this love of nature um, and just kind of poking around as a kid on this massive vast plot of land, mm. which was mine to explore. And it was an amazing childhood. So outside of Stephen King, what were you reading? 
Well, so I read Goosebumps books by the time I got to primary school. I think so I... Do you like <clears> the scary stuff? I did. I did. And I, you know what? I don't read scary stuff now. I don't know what that says about where I was mentally <laughs> as a child. <laughs> Probably wasn't any place good. Um, so, yeah, I was reading the Goosebumps and I think I owned every single one of them at one point um, because they were my reward for doing good work from mum and they were cheap. Uh, and I, you know, I didn't read... Yeah, I didn't read any of the classics. I didn't know who the classics authors were, but I had Clive Cussler and I had Matthew Riley um, and books that I borrowed from my grandma's bookshelf when we moved to a little country town outside of Brisbane. And that was what got me going until really I got to university and I realised that there was this whole massive landscape out there of all these authors who had written about big ideas and and. I was interested enough already uh, in the fact that those ideas existed. But when I found the books, I was um, absolutely beside myself because I was like, were holy you, shit. Yeah, were you drawn to nonfiction? <laughs> I was. I've, I've always read more nonfiction than I read fiction. I love a good yeah. fiction book, yeah. like love that sensation. But I read nonfiction because I feel like I'm in a race against time to learn as much <laughs> as I can about the world. Yeah. And particularly, like I read, I've read more books on physics and quantum mechanics than on almost anything else in my entire life. I've probably read about 40 or 50 of them. So you're um, smarty pants, right? Well, no, uh, I'm bad <laughs> at math. Uh, <laughs> I would have done physics in high school if I was smart enough, but I couldn't. But I love the theory behind it and the language. Um, and so when it's explained well, um, it has such a powerful effect because it is. it does govern the way we live. Yeah. And the ideas behind it are astonishingly mind-bending. And I love stuff like that. I just love. I love science as well, but I'm I'm hopeless. You know, <laughs> I don't have the brain for it often. And so I've got this friend who's right into it. So I call him phone a friend, the science yes. guy. <laughs> oh, so if you I, ever need to call me, just yeah, give me a I'm going to put you on my list. And then I, I need an explanation. I sometimes, after I've read an article or I've read a book, I need a verbal explanation as well, just to help me understand it. I do the same thing. I listen to the same authors oh, yeah. on podcasts being interviewed about these these books, and I often find that very useful. And I, I've in my life now, I still try to explain my life through these metaphors and terms to the point where it annoys my mother. And, you know, a couple of years ago, she got angry at me and she said, oh, sake, Rick. She's like, Einstein's got a lot to answer for. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, I'm sorry. So what did you study at university and what did you think you were going to be? Well, I knew I was going to be a journalist from the age of, yeah, from year five. It's all I ever wanted to be. Huge mistake, by the way, but it's all I ever wanted to be. Um, I knew that I could write. And all I wanted to do was go, well, what will allow me to write books one day but earn me an income in the meantime um, because I was obsessed with money because we grew up quite poor. And so I knew that journalism paid because I saw a Channel 9 journalist get out of a helicopter once and he was wearing a nice suit. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, I'm like, man, that guy is absolutely killing it. I'm going to get paid a fortune. Uh, wrong in every conceivable way. But I worked all through primary school and all through high school just trying to keep that in mind that I wanted to be a journalist. And so I got a scholarship and a cadetship straight out of high school to the Gold Coast Bulletin, wow. which came came with a half scholarship to Bond University, which is an extremely wealthy university, which I did not know about at the time. And, of course, I never finished my degree. I dropped out because I had this job. But it all went to shit very quickly because I, I had no idea how to live in that world. I was too sheltered and too poor, quite frankly. So right. It was a bit of a strange violation of my expectation versus what the reality was actually. What, seeing people with money? Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. know I was poor. Like I knew no. we struggled and I knew that mum was stressed mm -hmm. and I knew that she worried about how we were going to pay the bills. But I thought everyone was like that. 
I did too because when yeah. we were immigrants in Glebe, when we my parents first came to Australia, we lived in a one-room house, not a one-bedroom, mm. one room, six kids, two adults. But there's no unhappiness around that. No. No. I really felt that's how everybody else was living. Right. And yeah. you just don't know until you run up against it in, in your adult life. Yeah. And it kind of radicalised me a little bit. Not yeah. straight away. It was a slow burn. But it was like, I mean, and it would have been the same at any university because it wasn't just financial poverty, right? And you probably understand this. It's cultural. Yeah. You don't think that you read the right books. You don't think you know yeah. enough about the big ideas. You didn't have lawyer parents. We weren't um, listening to classical music. No. We didn't even listen to the ABC. Um, not even when we were on the station. Mm. and But I get there and it would have been the same at any uni, but Bond is filled with people who are not just wealthy but obscenely wealthy and from overseas. I lived with a billionaire Greek shipping heiress um, who was lovely, by the way, but for the most part these kids were so unaware yeah. of their own privilege and to the point where they actually mocked you for being poor or a scholarly kid as they called it. Wow. You know, one, one guy gave, he was the son of a, property developer worth $250 million and he gave a valedictorian speech at the university saying that the fee help kids, which is um, fee help and scholarship kids, which is what I was on, um, were ruining the elite status of the university. <gasps> yeah, like in front of everyone and he got applauded for it. Like that's the, And that's what kind of broke me, I think, in that sense. So I dropped out of university, I didn't finish, and I still haven't got a degree, yeah. <laughs> you know, in keeping with my background, I think yeah. I've succeeded. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I think we don't have to worry about that. Tell me how you became radical. What did that look like? It was a slow burn and it wasn't until, so I, I see my life in stages, right? So like going to university was the first one that opened my eyes to the way the world was a little bit, mm-hmm. but I wasn't political. Um, and I know the personal is political, mm-hmm. but I really did not know anything about politics. Um, we grew up watching the Channel 9 news and we knew that there was Labor and the Coalition and that was about it. I didn't uh, join any uh, student politics things. Bond University didn't even have a student union in the traditional sense because it was all Liberal voters uh, for the most part. No, no. No. They literally applauded John Howard when he'd gotten rid of, um, when he made student unionism voluntary, I think it was. Now, I'm just going to say this in case I don't Mm. get a chance to say it anywhere else on the podcast (laughs) because I like to slip it in almost every (laughs) podcast. And the listeners remind me, I really believe that John Howard introduced hatred in this country. Do you know what? So I haven't spoken about this publicly because there are bits that I can't say, unfortunately, but after the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand two years ago, it was on my birthday, um, I wrote a story um, which never got printed and that story was looking at the relationship between New Zealand and Australia and what led to this moment and all of the experts I spoke to, bar none, said that we have a reckoning due in this country because we have let this hatred creep into society because ever since John Howard particularly pandered to Pauline Hanson. Absolutely. Um, so your theory is 100% correct. Thank you. That's a compliment coming from you. I will take that. It's like, Honestly, it is. Yeah. there has been something gross and wrong and corroded about our discourse since that moment. I think it's the moment we lost our innocence as a country. We were never entirely innocent, of course, because we've treated mm-hmm. Indigenous people terribly since day one um, and we never atoned for that or even admitted it for that matter. But there was something modern, I guess, about the loss of that innocence in under his prime ministership. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Think of Tampa. I mean, oh, right. my God. Yeah, well, it was around anyway. the same time, 2001. Yeah. 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 I want to go back to you being radicalized. Yes. Well, so I the, like that. It, it really, I would so have I liked did, to have seen a photo at the time. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I was radicalised for a Queensland country kid. It's not like I ever joined the socialist alternative or anything like that. And my politics, my friends laugh at me and call me centrist and all that, all the rest of it because they're they're actual lefties. I, I hate labels and I think that... You're a centrist. No, but I just oh. hate... I, I'm quite progressive, I think. I, as someone said to me on Twitter once, they said, I read your journalism and I like to think that you're not biased except against stupidity and bad ideas. Yeah. And I can get behind that. And hatred. Well, yes, I don't like hatred. And, I, I mean, fundamentally, my worldview comes from a lived experience of what others would call class consciousness or even a Marxist view of class, which I'd never read those books. I don't know what Marx says. I really don't. But I know what it's like to be poor and I know why a lot of people are poor and it's a choice made by decision makers in this country Mm. because um, we saw with the doubling of the job seeker supplement last year during coronavirus, we lifted something like 1.2 million people out of poverty immediately, overnight, Mm. can be done Mm. um, and we choose not to. So, like, my, my, my politics is in a really kind of practical realistic sense. I don't, and because I grew up with someone who wasn't particularly well-educated, my mum, but who's such a lovely person, if you try to talk to her using the language of Marxist, Leninist or whatever the hell it is, she'd switch off. She'd be like, I'm trying to pay my electricity bill. Yeah. So like that's like that's yeah. where I come to it from. So my radicalisation, I guess, in that sense happened when I started working at the Australian newspaper and it happened very slowly because I suddenly worked alongside people who were otherwise, um, and I'm talking about the journalists, not the editors, people who were otherwise well-meaning and, and, and nice and good at their jobs who all came from the nice schools um, not all of them, but most of them, and they all came from the right families and they talked about these big ideas in their homes and they actually could not conceive of what it might be like for someone to live in poverty. And the thing that really turned to me was the introduction or the proposed introduction of the GP co-payment, circa 2014-15, that horrible Abbott hockey budget. And people were laughing in the newsroom about it. It's like, it's just $7. Like, that's like, that's two coffees. And I'm like, you don't understand that that seven dollars is the difference between homelessness and being able to live in your your you know extraordinarily expensive home anyway as a single parent, mm-hmm. and that's that's the moment where I realised that I couldn't actually sit back and be you know just live my life because ignoring that was ignoring my mum's circumstance, mm-hmm. and I came to see all of these public policy discussions through the prism of how it would have affected us growing up. Hmm. And it made it very it's, real. It's so interesting that your past, and it wasn't unhappy. Mine wasn't no, unhappy. No, I was, I was loved by my mum exactly. and I, was, I had, a, I had a happy childhood for the most part. Absolutely, same here. But, you know, just recently I went to Monavale with some friends. Hmm. And I'm sorry I, for that. 
<laughs> no, I'm joking. It I'm sorry, mate, of our listeners. Yes, it is beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful, this beautiful apartment on the water. But I saw the caravan park and I remembered that when I was in primary school, a friend of mine, Michelle, her mum holidayed there once and so they invited me to join them and that was the only holiday. I didn't even know about holidays. That was no. the only holiday that I'd ever been on was an overnight stay or two nights in a caravan. And my two adult friends, this was only last week, that we, mm. they just couldn't believe it that I'd never been on holidays. Right? Never. So th- there are experiences that we have that are literally unfathomable yeah. to people from other classes. And it's not because they're being mean. No. They just actually cannot get their head around that people have to live like this. Yeah. And yeah. and. I have this same discussion when I talk to people about them buying their first home in Sydney and they always preface it saying, yeah, no, I saved up, um, did it all on my own. And then I'm like, oh, so like your parents didn't give you any money? And they're like, oh, yeah, well, obviously they went in halves. And I'd be like, oh, like and lovely people, nice people. But I'm like, are oh, you But you know what they me? say? Oh, but I'm paying the mortgage. Yes, That's what they yes. say. Yes, but I'm, like, I'm paying getting, the mortgage. Yeah. Getting the deposit is the hardest part. I pay more in rent yeah. than I would if I had a mortgage. It's ridiculous. Okay. So tell me how you came to write because I feel as though we're probably going to talk a lot and talk yes. over. <laughs> so <laughs> tell me how you came to writing long form. Yeah, well, it's always what I wanted to do really. Like journalism was a stopgap for me. I'm not naturally inclined as a journalist. Like I'm shy (laughs) and terrible at talking to people for the most part. I've gotten better. Well, I didn't notice that today. (laughs) (laughs) That's because I I, I recognise in you someone that I'm very much familiar with. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll take that as a compliment. Yes, I think you should. I think you should. But, But like books to me was what I always wanted to write. I just, I... And for no other reason than vanity, really. I mean, like yeah. I, I had these books that I treasured uh, on the bookshelf. My favourite ever book as a kid, again, not literary, um, was Michael Crichton's sequel to Jurassic Park, The Lost yeah. World, which yeah. I've got with me right now and it's torn to pieces because I just read it so much. But to have this idea that, and I think, you know, I must have known that I wasn't really going to have kids mm. um, or have a legacy of any other kind of, you know, substantial standing, to be able to have something that lives physically in the world beyond you is frankly quite intoxicating and I just you know I feel like I had things to say and it's taken me a long time to work out what they were but I knew they were there and I've just always hungered for that and I I don't think I'll ever stop pinching myself that I'm even here now getting to talk about Rick Morton author like it's crazy to me. I've only you been know, one for three years. Do you know um, Trent Dalton? I, I'm yes. Not, I'm sure you'd know. When he, with his first book, and the name just escapes me for his uh, my Boy Swallows Universe. Boy Swallows Universe. Yes. Sorry, Trent. You know. Yeah, I, yeah. But when that first came out, I spoke to him and he couldn't even say the word author. No. He said he couldn't say the word writer or senior journalist or he, he just couldn't put a label on himself because, you know, as you know, he had a really interesting background as well. And then when I spoke to him recently for the second book, he's mm. coming to terms with it now. Right? Yeah. This, I was excited because our books came out in the same year and we're both Queensland kids Yeah, um, with, with you know, hard scrabble backgrounds. He's harder than mine um, in every conceivable way. But I was the same. Like I used mm. to physically kind of revolt at the idea that I could write writer. And I remember the first time I put it in one of my bi- uh, biography sections on Instagram and I'm like, because I've always wanted to be a writer and I already published my first book, 100 Years of Dirt. It had been at that point a national bestseller and I still felt repulsed 
mm. um, by this idea that I was claiming something that wasn't mine. Mm. And that's another thing. That's how they get you on the class stuff as well because they make you think that you don't deserve access to these worlds. Um, and you absolutely do. I believe that in my bones, but I don't believe it about me. <laughs> so, you know, read into that what you will. Mm. Tell me about the new book. So it's, you know, the elevator pitch, uh, I need to get better at this, but it's it's. Uh, I had stopped loving being in the world. I had a really difficult 20s when all of the the kind of pain of my childhood came back to really roost, I think. And I'd shut myself off and I didn't know why, but I was having these horrendous breakdowns and I was eventually diagnosed with what they call complex PTSD, mm-hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder, which I had never heard of, the complex part. Didn't know it existed. Uh, but it's defined by, you know, a persistent uh, lack of love or emotional abuse and neglect from a primary caregiver particularly when you're a child and you, it's a betrayal trauma. You know, you trusted someone and they couldn't be there for you. And so I kind of, I'd been doing all these things in my life about learning to be more open in the world and be more exposed and vulnerable, quite literally. And I realised, well, if this condition can be caused by a lack of love, then maybe um, a really broad definition of love just sprayed everywhere, like a kind of like a shotgun approach to um, putting it back into the world. Maybe that's a solution. And I love I mean, that. I love yeah. that, that your approach to that. I love it. Do you know what? It works because, mm. and I'm, it's not a self-help book, but like very basically, if you don't have a language for these things in your life, then you don't appreciate things or see them. So if you don't have a language for beauty, then you don't necessarily see beautiful things. Um, if you don't have a language for love, then you avoid it in your life. It's just a very basic architecture of the brain. And really, I mean, more simply than all of that put together is that I wanted to write a book that was what I like to call the the ultimate Venn diagram of Rick Morton interests, which is science, philosophy, a little bit of personal essay, memoir, um, and a bit of reporting. Like it's my way of discovering, you know, curiosity You've got in the world. Such a wonderful voice and a wonderful writing style. I find it addictive, actually. It's really thank you because I don't know how to write any other way, and I've mm. always written. I've gotten better at writing, but I've always written in the same way. And I personally can't stand it. <laughs> you can't well, stand I, it. I just don't think it's that good. It's conversational. Uh, it's I, well, that's, what, that's good if you think that because that's what I want. Oh, it's exactly what I think. It's exactly what I read. It's conversational and that's why I like the style a lot. Do you know what I don't like? It, it took me years to work this out, is reading mm. either fiction or nonfiction and when people are writing about subjects like yours where they can write a book but not give any of themselves away. I yeah, I don't like that either. It's even in a podcast. If you don't give away a bit of yourself, then I don't know how we can convince the listener or the reader to be with you. Yeah, to trust you. To trust you. And the reason I'm writing at all is particularly this book. I mean, I'd written my memoir, right, and I'd written about family trauma and my brother's trauma and my mum's trauma and my dad's trauma. Didn't think it had applied to me at all. I mean, I had these horrible mental breakdowns, but I thought it was just unrelated mental illness. And so for someone like me to have never heard of this term or how it would affect me, um, to have to hear about it, you know, on a writer's festival stage in Newcastle, is bonkers to me because I'm like, well, if 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 that's me, then what about everyone else? And in order to get the point across about what this is and why it's different to getting treatment for depression or anxiety, um, you have to put yourself out there. You mm. you have to kind of hammer home exactly how it works in practice. And the only way I know it works in practice is through how it works through me. 
Mm. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's so interesting you should say that too, because I often think not just for mental illness, for so many things about feelings or sadness or whatever. And sometimes you're feeling that way and you can't describe it. You can't verbalize yes. it. You can't tell your friends or your partners, or whatever. <laughs> but then you hear somebody talk about it and like mm. a penny drops that feeling, so, oh, I, bang, that's how I am. That, and that's, isn't that why we read? Like when I read something that describes something that I do or think or feel, I, it's just an astonishing feeling because I'm like, oh, my God, like mm. here I am being seen. I'm 34. I still get that feeling every time I read and it's astonishing. And the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life is getting those same emails and messages from people who are reading my books. And, mm. you know, I've got one recently about this book from someone who picked it up early at the Adelaide Writers Festival and was like, it felt like I was curling up next to you on the couch and that I felt finally understood. And honestly, I know it sounds wanky, but that is an amazing feeling. Oh like, no! I pinch yeah, myself. Absolutely. Pinch myself. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love hearing from readers. We put out a weekly electronic newsletter. It goes out to seventy thousand people or something. Like huge. Jeez. You know, people write back. That's amazing. I love that. and they write back. You know, if I've said something like, you know, my mum's not well or something, they'll yeah. ask me how my mum is. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? I love that. I love hearing from them all of the time. And that's the only reason I like Facebook because yes. have yeah. those conversations. Well, that's where the most people are um, online. And, you know, online connection has its downsides, but we are social creatures. Mm-hmm. And having just knowing there are people around who are having similar experiences to you or even people who read your stuff and, and can't relate to the actual details, but they relate to the idea idea of this feeling um it's such a universal experience and well, they empathize with the feeling yeah and why yeah. else live why else yeah. be here if that's not what you're doing mm. we've got to go i knew we would run <laughs> i knew it uh, oh my god is it have we finished already yeah i think so we've <laughs> we're up to 30 minutes thank you so much rick morton for your time i think i'd like to bring you back at some point when's your next book out Ah, well, <laughs> hopefully uh, hopefully, 2023. Yeah. I've just got to start like working how, on it. Did you like how I put you on the spot there? Yes, yeah, yeah. it's great. Okay. Good interview. Well, <laughs> good interview. <laughs> we might come back to you before then. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That was really fun. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.